think ballet in general is a very queer making art form or sport or athletic endeavor, you know? <laughs> like a good leather daddy, it straddles them all. <laughs> day is it today? Why, it's You Made Me Queer Day, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was a short excerpt from A Christmas Carol in May. Hi, I'm Trevor Campbell, and this is You Made Me Queer, the show where queer people sing the entire Hollow Notes songbook at karaoke while you sip your two oceans Riesling and sweat. That's right. Every episode, I invite on a fantastic LGBTQIA plus person to point the finger of blame at who and or what made them queer. We're back with episode 14. Whoever thought we'd make it this far? Everyone said we wouldn't. Everyone said we wouldn't. And here we are at the finish line on the the box of victory wow you can tell i really know my sports on the box of victory accepting our <laughs> wreath of roses as one does when they win the big game and that my friends is why i used to get bullied in gym class i don't want to spend too much time on an intro today because we have a big episode which i will get to first of all friends who are finding us through apple podcasts a couple of weeks ago, Apple Podcasts updated their sort of server and system, etc., which has meant there has been a bit of a glitch with uh, some posting for Apple Podcasts. So you may not have seen new You Made Me Queer episodes there. I don't know why I'm saying this to you, because if you found this as working or if uh, it's not working, you're not listening to this. Regardless, the episode is still out every Thursday. You can find it on other streaming platforms like Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you find podcasts. But never fear, it's coming. So, so don't freak out. I've checked in. I've been told that this is being rectified soon. So I appreciate you staying real cool. As you always do, real cool. But speaking of Apple Podcasts and anywhere, we would love if you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast because it helps new people find the show. I usually say this at the end, I'm front-loading it. Anyway, enough about that. I sure hate talking about plugs, but we need them. That is how the podcast world goes round. Okay, now on to today's show. Today, as I said, episode 14, and our guest is... Drumroll, please. Jinx Monsoon. Yes, that's right. That Jinx Monsoon. Season 5 winner of RuPaul's Drag Race, Jinx Monsoon. This one is something else. I'll tell you what, I had the time of my life talking to Jinx and they do not disappoint. And speaking about Drag Race, I'm a big fan of RuPaul's Drag Race. I've watched the show since the beginning, live on air, since that first season where they shot through a Vaseline-smeared lens. And, you know, before that, I'd known Drag Queens in Toronto. I actually, prior to that, had Go-Go danced for Drag Queens in Toronto, Backup Danced, shout out Safonda Cox. But 
I really had sort of a superficial understanding of drag and watching Drag Race helped me to not only get drag, what drag is, I mean, I know it's very much one slice of the drag world, but it helped me to really unpack so many of the hangups I had around gender identity and gender expression big time. So I really can't overstate its importance for me. And Jinx, I think, is legendary from that show and has gone on to have an enormous career post RuPaul's Drag Race. For example, it hadn't come out yet when we had this interview, but Jinx Monsoon has just launched her own podcast called Hi Jinx. Do you get it? Do you get it? On Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. So please check that out. There have only been two episodes so far, but they have included the incredible Joel Kim Booster. Hi, Joel. Would you like to come on You Made Me Queer? And the super funny Kate Berlant. Berlant? How do you say that? Regardless, today is a big episode. I'm very excited. This is actually two interviews I had with Jinx rolled into one, so it is a bit of a long conversation. But there is just so much good stuff, I didn't want to cut too much. So it's a little longer than my usual episodes, but I think you're going to like it. Um, A little more about Jinx. I really don't want to go on too long here. Jinx is the winner of season five of a little show called RuPaul's Drag Race. New York Magazine named Jinx one of the most powerful drag queens in the US. She is certainly a drag queen and also a veritable cabaret star and movie star. In the past year, she's appeared in Clea Duval's Happiest Season. Hi, Clea. Would you like to come on You Made Me Queer? And the Jinx and Dela Holiday Special with other drag superstar Ben De La Creme. Fun fact, Jarek Hoffer, the person behind Jinx, based their Drake persona on a combination of Lucille Ball, Maria Bamford, Devin Green, and Sarah Silverman, and their Drake persona's last name, Monsoon, is derived from the character Adina Monsoon from legendary British sitcom Absolutely Fabulous, aka AppFab. So there is just so much brilliant energy channeling through this total tour de force and by some stroke of luck and twist of the universe i had the immense pleasure of sitting down to have a conversation with them and i did it so i could share it with you so i really really hope you like it this was a special one for me so without further ado uh please sink your slick little teeth into my conversation with the iconic jinx monsoon and just as you are beginning recording, you picked up, uh, is that a small guitar or a ukulele? A ukulele. It's brand new. <laughs> it's gorgeous. It has like a speaker built in. Yes. I've had an acoustic ukulele for a while and um, I'm still pretty lousy at playing it and singing it at the same time. Uh-huh. But I'm getting better at playing it. <laughs> have you played much before? Like, do you have a long history of instruments? No, I have a long history with music and multiple times I've tried to become proficient in different instruments and I never stick with one long enough. Ukulele has been the most successful for me because I basically have self-taught and it's very, very easy to self-teach on the ukulele. So I'm able to do it at my pace. And that's really, (laughs) if we've learned one thing this past year, it's that our pace is important. (laughs) 
<laughs> Good for you, because I play guitar and I have very small hands. I don't know if here's um my head for scale. <laughs> and I found ukulele hard because it's too small, but it works for you. Well, that's why I had to get the biggest ukulele <laughs> that they have. And then I'm even thinking of maybe also getting a baritone ukulele, which is even larger and is even more like a small guitar, but still very simple to play. And I mean, if I can't just easily look up the tabs online, there's no way. <laughs> Let's imagine a world when people leave their homes again and you're touring or doing things like that. Like having a ukulele, what a great touring instrument. Yeah, I um, most of my work is in cabaret. My music partner is a pianist and also creates a lot of the backing tracks that we use live on stage. And I've wanted to contribute more to the musical aspects of our shows for a while. But, um, you know, I'm the singer, but I'm very bad at doing two things at once. So, you know, singing and then also doing something with my hands has been a, a challenge, but it's been fun. It is. It's a bit like the pat the head, rub the stomach situation. It's like I, I can hold a rhythm until I have to, like, also sing a rhythm that's not necessarily the same rhythm that I'm playing. So they all just become stupid in the end <laughs> like every rhythm is ruined i know what you're saying with guitar i have like one strumming pattern every time i think oh i'm really like changing the game it's the exact same strumming pattern which is the only one i'm able to do yeah it's got to become second nature and the only thing that's second nature to me is not uh, appropriate to share on <laughs> a lady never tells <laughs> it's blowjobs people <laughs> spoiler are you going to play something or is, are you going to underscore a conversation? I'm just going to hold it on my lap. Great. And like when I'm thinking or trying to like go back on a memory, I'll just, you know, strum it lightly like this. <laughs> That's you know? right. Get the sense memory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have good thoughtful ukulele eyes. Thank you. It helps that I have no eyebrows. You know, it's a, <laughs> there's nothing to distract you. It's all eye game. <laughs> My best friend, Kenny, is part of my coven. We, you know, practice magic in different ways, but he's been stressing upon me the importance of embracing darkness. You know, we're kind of conditioned to believe that darkness is inherently bad and to spend time in the dark is inherently um, detrimental when there's actually a lot of things we learn about ourselves in the dark. <laughs> Such as? Well, you know, kind of when it's dark and quiet and you have fewer distractions from your thoughts, that's kind of when you're most candid with yourself. Like, I think we push things to the back of our brain or to the bottom of our stomach or wherever it is we push things, you know, <laughs> throughout the day just so that we can function as human beings. And then it's that time in the dark and the silence in your bed at night that's where you kind of have to confront things with yourself. And it's why I go to bed with the TV on. <laughs> because I am scared of my thoughts. <laughs> I refuse to confront anything or learn one thing this year. No, so I'll drown it out with the Simpsons. <laughs> yes. oh, please, God. Yeah, it's just instruments all around, noise, straight cats. Just bring it in. Ben de la Creme says that about me all the time. She says it very flippantly, but also just very truthfully. <laughs> she's like, she's just always saying things like, or you could do what Jinx does and drown out your thoughts with constant entertainment and um, mental stimulus. <laughs> <laughs> because she's scared to confront them. Anyway, here's the dressing room, you know. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people, it's the majority tactic. 
Yeah, just call it what it is. <laughs> I mean, like, have you found in, in this time of darkness or whatever you want to call it, having this stillness? I think a lot of people, like, for example, now you are holding a ukulele. Like, mm -hmm. things are bubbling up where suddenly, oh, I'm the kind of person who, you know, makes a weekly soup or whatever <laughs> it is I do. Have you found anything that sort of changed your idea of who you are? Um, not really changed my idea of who I am, but reinforced my idea of who I am. Mm. I think the most confronting thing of this year was like learning just how much I have become like my mother and my grandmother and my aunt, like the women who raised me. You know, you kind of go through life thinking, I'm never going to make the same mistakes I've witnessed in my life and I'm never going to be that person and I'm never going to do this and I'm never going to fall for that trick and I'm never going to find myself in that situation. And here I am at 33 and I feel like I, I've done it all. I've done everything I said I was never going to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's moments when I look in the mirror or I hear my voice played back to me and it's my mom. And I'm like, what are you doing there, mom? <laughs> like, get out of me. Oh <laughs> you know, like, God. stop, stop becoming her. <laughs> it's so weird. And I wonder, like, well, I know nothing about science. You know, how is this baked in? Because one thing with me is sometimes my handwriting looks exactly like my dad's mm -hmm. in a way that kind of freaks me out. Like, how is this in me? <laughs> yeah. And, and I heard, my, I mean, I watched my mom do it when she realized she was becoming my grandmother <laughs> and she'd scream and she'd be like, no, I, I can't be becoming her. <laughs> but, and it's, you know, I think it's a confronting thing, but it's also been very affirming for me in my own identity. Mm. I've always, you know, I don't identify as female, but I've never identified as male. And mm. I've always identified with the feminine, you know? I don't feel really like I have a specific gender, but it is feminine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh-huh, sure, sure. Like, um, it's more so that I am the essence of femininity regardless of my genitalia. <laughs> That's my gender identity. Yeah, absolutely, right? <laughs> and as well, like, I mean, if we're learning anything, especially in the queer community or talking about orientation or gender identity, you get to say it exactly the way you want to say it and go for it. Yeah. One of my favorite um, gender activists, Kate Bornstein, mm. you know, just really puts emphasis on finding words for yourself, yeah. you know, and, and choosing the words to explain, not explain, but to, to describe um, your experience in the way that best suits you. And those are your words and anyone else can use different words. And these words don't necessarily work across the board. So, you know, I've only recently kind of found the most concise way to um, self-identify. But I say I am a woman in uh, an assigned male at birth body who doesn't feel trapped. <laughs> well, that's great. That's just um, the circumstances. <laughs> I am a woman in an assigned male at birth birth body and I don't feel trapped by that fact and <laughs> that's why I feel like I am already in the body that I'm meant to be in and now that I express myself without fear of being without fear of the stigma of femininity 
that's like all I really needed in life is just to have that stigma removed so that I could be myself. And the affirming moments of these weird confrontations are I am becoming one of the women in my family, not one of the men in my family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my mother refers to me as the new matriarch of the family, not the patriarch. And the fact that like Ooh. my family can recognize that within me as well. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and the fact that like even my genetics seem to affirm that I'm going to become one of the women in my family. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you're the matriarch, as long as you're running the show. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and I kind of skipped a generation because my mom was kind of like, well, I certainly didn't become the matriarch. <laughs> we need we need everyone. We need the audience. We need the people on stage. It's all different. But I wonder, too, because the way you've described that, I think it sounds like an unconventional artist path, too. And as someone who, you know, you have music theater training, you're quite well known for doing drag specifically. But you have kind of like danced around these genres. Like, did you also have to find those words to talk about who you were as an artist? I guess so, yeah, because, I mean, uh, you know, a big part of it is still all about stigma. Mm. There just used to be a different... I don't think the stigma around being a drag queen is gone. Mm. I just think it's transformed. It's taken a new shape. And it's taken a less impactful shape. <laughs> like, I don't think the stigma holds me back as much as it once did. Mm -hmm. But it's still there. The stigma once was that to be a drag queen meant... You know, you couldn't be taken seriously. Um, you were undateable <laughs> <laughs> because there was a big stigma around being, you know, a person with a penis who dresses or presents or behaves femininely, right, even sure. if it's just like a part time thing about you, you know. I used to hide the fact that I was a drag queen from anyone I was like romantically or sexually interested in because I just thought that, you know, for sure <laughs> there was like a, a real reason to believe that if they found out I was a drag queen that they would not even consider dating me. Oh, wow. Um, so it was normally something that came up in the like third or fourth date. Now, that's like just a bunch of conditioning and I think the conditioning has been undone a lot in our community but now that drag queens are kind of like integrated into mainstream culture and media more now we've kind of become a caricature of ourselves <laughs> in many representations in media and so it's like that happens with any niche group or um, specific community when they start finding space in um, mainstream media, the natural thing that Hollywood does is turns them into an archetype or a caricature, but at least it introduces you to them. Yeah. <laughs> and then throughout the years, we fill those stories with more life and more authenticity. Mm -hmm. So I think we're on that path, but we're not like, we're not at the Emerald City yet. <laughs> we are not at the Emerald City. Yeah, it's a lot of course correction where you show people or teach them and they're like, I get it. It's like this. And you're like, no, nah, yeah. almost, but uh, also like this. And but but maybe I'll take that jump with you now talking about sort of being steered or being conditioned in a way. Let's get to the heart of the matter here. <laughs> why I called you here 16 today. minutes the in and you want to you want to actually talk about what the <laughs> podcast is about. Sure. I hope you realize, you know, I'm a bit of a talker and I'll go on a tangent. So I hope you're Please, ready. I would happily let you keep going. Uh, I'm just gently steering the craft. As yes, it were. of course. Yes. So, so here we are. So yes, the deepest conditioning, the cruelest conditioning, perhaps some might say, is 
one that was forced upon us as youths, mm. as, uh, you know, little baby animals crawling from the egg, which is uh, queerness, basically. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now in 2021, science is so advanced that we know a lot of things about uh, the body and the mind. But when we were born, no one knew what made you queer. Yeah. It was very easy to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like, you know, if you listen to too much AM radio <laughs> or if you score too high or too low in one of those little eye chart tests, with the little letters you know anything could make you queer so what i want to do today is give you the opportunity once and for all to set the record straight who or what made you queer i think the most concise way to say it is that disney made me queer (laughs) and um i think the sooner that disney like you know owns up to the effect it has on the sexuality of its audience. (laughs) And I'm not just talking about queerness. I'm talking about, I think I learned that I was queer and a slut all at the same time, thanks to Disney. That's a lot to handle at once. Yeah. And then the extra bonus of also finding out I had a foot fetish at like six years old. So thanks, Disney. Well, this was six. So can we, before we go, because this will not hold up in court, before we go throwing a wide net, what Disney offering specifically did this to you? Oh, it was Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. And it all happened at once. So Gaston comes swaggering into Belle's little provincial cottage and basically proposes to her in the most chauvinist, horrible way. And while proposing, he kicks off his boots and kicks his feet up onto the table and there's a hole in one of his socks and his big toe is sticking out. And this whole scene is burned into my memory. And (laughs) I remember being a little child and thinking, I would do that in regards to like, I'll marry Gaston and just have babies for him. If it means that because he showed his best asset, which was (laughs) his big toe, that one toe. (laughs) Was it well groomed or was it sort of a gnarly woodsman toe? No, it was like a totally neutral, you know, I guess well groomed. I mean, other than the fact that his sock had a hole in it. (laughs) But of course, you know, they did depict Belle plugging her nose, implying that his feet smelled bad. And of course, I noticed that. Shame. I mean, like, what was Disney doing? Yeah, what's like, the coding there? Who was that for? Who was that for if it wasn't for people with foot fetishes? <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, well, who was that scene for? <laughs> it wasn't for the four-year-old girls that the uh, that the movie was directed toward. <laughs> right, when they're like, ooh, a stinky toe. That was for cock-hungry dick pig um, gay men in their 30s. That's who that was for. <laughs> That's the Freudian link there, I suppose, with that sort of uh, appendage jutting out. Those Disney pervs. Would you, now, two questions. One, do you know what WikiFeed is? And two, did WikiFeed exist at that time? Um, I mean, you know, as a, I'll, I'll say my foot fetish is fairly mild in, okay. in the spectrum of like fetishes, you know. <laughs> like on a, on a one to ten, what's the heat? Maybe a 4.5. No, maybe a okay. four, a solid four. I'm going to say a solid four. 4.5 implies just a little bit extra. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yes, I know what WikiFeed is, but as a person with a mild foot fetish, I don't like frequent the site. Okay. It's not your homepage. No. <laughs> it was my comedy partner who had to um, 
tell me about it because he he thought he made it big when he w- became featured on Wiki Feet. <laughs> I was going to ask because as someone who's interested in feet, what, I didn't know if you were maybe trying to get on Wiki Feet or because I haven't searched. Are you already on Wiki Feet? I haven't searched. I don't know if I'm on Wiki Feet. I hope I'm not. My foot fetish is a one way street. Right. It is. Um. It is. <laughs> Fully about the other person. In fact, I have kind of like anxiety about anyone interacting with my feet because I've been a drag queen for 18 years. And for like five years before that, I was a dancer. So my feet never stood a chance. They're they're horrible. Uh, You know, I'm the same. I don't know if it's because my shoes were too small when I was little, but my feet... It's a business as usual. And then when we start approaching toe territory, they curve in Mm. kind of like a capital D. And by the time you get to the end, it's just like a kind of like a little scythe. (laughs) Should I go to a doctor (laughs) is my question. I mean, that's probably always a good idea. Um, (laughs) I'm one of those. I'm one of those fair weather hypochondriacs where I'm like, I would love to go to the doctor and have a test for everything. Find out anything that might be wrong with me. But I'm too um, lazy to actually do that. <laughs> lazy and like also like rational. Um. <laughs> okay, so so back to back to Gaston. So the feet are on the table. Your antenna is up. What happens next? Yeah, I describe this as, um, of course, Wicked hadn't come out yet mm. at this age. But looking back on it retrospectively, I can assign a song to this moment and it's or at least a lyric. And I always say I, I saw Gaston kick his feet up on the table and it was like something has changed within me. Something is not the same. And it's not that it was like a sexual attraction at that age, because I I was actually fairly shy about sex until I came out, you know, mm. because when I was the light attempts I made at passing as a straight person, <laughs> I was really uncomfortable at the subject of sex ever coming up okay. because I was afraid I would have to like do it, you know, talk about my interest in <laughs> Um, the cis femme anatomy. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and at that time, I had zero interest in any anatomy, but um, least of all, cis femme anatomy. Um, that was just my truth at the time. Sure, it just animated anatomy. <laughs> yeah, <It> just animated <laughs> feet. Um, <laughs> so, you know, as a, as a little gay boy, sex kind of made me really, really uncomfortable. But at the same time, um, feet made me, um, you know, sing Alphaba songs. So. <laughs> yeah. Channel high-level music theater. So was there another, like, were there other moments in that film? Or were there other Disney films that helped to uh, push you over the edge? I was really hot for Aladdin. Oh, sure. Something about him wearing a vest with no shirt underneath. Uh-huh. Yeah, there were, I mean, and then, you know, complex feelings towards adult Simba, teenage Simba, and then adult Simba, you know. Which Simba, if you had to only pick (laughs) one Simba to wine and dine, which one? Well, I mean, at my current age, adult Simba is the only one that's appropriate. And then he'd be be like at marrying age, you know, so I could become queen. (laughs) That's right. But, but, you know, as a kid, of course, it was all teenage Simba. He had a mohawk. He seemed like a, he was a rebel at that time. You know, he was living out in the wild with Timon and Pumbaa. He was voiced by Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Not, t- no, that was, ch- 
child Simba. Oh, you're not right. You're right. We didn't even get to like hear teenage Simba's voice. Oh, there were three Simbas. Yeah, there was child Simba. Child teenage, and then okay. teenage Simba literally only appears in a montage. Uh. Like you don't hear his voice. You don't hear. He just walks along that um, log. Oh, that's right. Flicking his head back and forth. (laughs) (laughs) Growing up. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I've also like, I've gone on record to say that I think that Disney is hugely responsible for furries. Really? Furries at large? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you think about um, how sexy they made adult Simba or, um, you know, Robin Hood, an anthropomorphic fox with a British accent who doesn't wear pants. You know, like, they knew what they were doing. I have to believe they knew what they were doing. But Disney, you know, Disney's not the only contributor to my queerness. <laughs> okay, so, first of all, I I think that is a popular cartoon trope. The Like, I call it the porky pig in it, where they're wearing a shirt, and then it's just all party from the waist down. Yeah, my partner and I call it Donald Ducking it. <laughs> same idea same idea <laughs> and now it's called the way we dress for zoom <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know i've always um i've always found it kind of especially a turn on to see a guy just in like a shirt and socks but no nothing on the legs or the crotch i don't know why i don't know what it is specifically about that that <laughs> turns me on other than you know my latent cartoon lust i inherited as a child <laughs> and it's a look that not everyone can pull off yeah, that's very fair. <laughs> Don't skip leg day. <laughs> My partner has a tendency to just fall asleep with whatever state of undress he's in. Mm-hmm. You know, like he'll oftentimes take off his pants and underwear for some reason. I don't know. Maybe we had <laughs> sex or something. Who's to but say? then he'll just fall asleep with just a, you know, a shirt and sometimes a cardigan on. <laughs> I like that there's like a like a prestige to it. Yeah, I don't think it's prestige. No, I think it's 100% laziness. But but the cardigan, you know, the cardigan might fool you. You're right. Like if he fell asleep with just a blazer on or something. That's right. A cravat. He is British, though, isn't he? He is British. You know, I I think I've always known I was going to end up with someone from a different country. I I just didn't know what country it was. Okay. Why was that? It's because I've slept my way across America. (laughs) There was no one left. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just a testament to my sluttiness, really. That's right. You had to take it overseas. Good for you. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I'm very passionate about, you know, being an advocate for slut positivity, ethical Mm -hmm. slut positivity, you know. I'm fervently against kink shaming. You know, we we mentioned furries, but I feel like the furry community gets kink shamed more than any other community, and they don't deserve that since it was Disney's fault anyway. That's right. Let Disney explain that. And I think that's, like you said, due in a large part to people not knowing anything about furries. Yeah, I mean, I I happened to do a, a research paper on the furry community, the cosplay community, and comparing and contrasting them to the drag community. When I was in college, I was doing an anthropology class, and that's when I first kind of like investigated the furry community and the cosplay community and realized they're essentially just doing drag. So if you're a fan of drag, I mean, I get it if being a furry isn't for you, but you know, at the end of the day, don't yuck someone else's yum. 100%. (laughs) 
<laughs> and and as well, like I think what you're suggesting too, that being a furry or identifying with that community is not inherently sexual. It's just one part of it. Yeah, you know, there's so many communities where there might be a sexual element to it, but it's not, you know, it's not exclusively why that community exists, you know? Mm-hmm. Like there's, I think there's people who like to wear leather because that's their truth. And there's people who like to wear leather because they want to broadcast to the world that they're a leather daddy, you know? <laughs> and and they're and they're looking to fill up some boys with some fatherly love. I don't know. But the point is, <laughs> the point is, though Disney is a huge contributor to my, my sluttiness and my queerness, you know, I think ballet in general is a very queer making art form or sport or athletic endeavor, you know? <laughs> like a good leather daddy, it straddles them all. <laughs> Because I started doing ballet in middle school. And I tell you, you know, if I wasn't queer before, ballet would have... I had no chance. I had no chance of being straight. Did you go to an art school? How did they offer ballet? I did. I I went to an arts magnet middle school in Portland, Oregon, called Da Vinci Arts Middle School. And if that doesn't already sound so (laughs) Portland to you, get this. My homeroom teacher's name for all three years was Jodie Foster. (laughs) so it's like there's the totally like liberal bubbleness of it all the blue bubble-ness of it all you know going to an arts magnet middle school and then the kind of non sequitur randomness of having (laughs) my teacher okay i'm named jody foster yeah there's a lot to do there first of all (laughs) did this jody foster have any quality similar to the jody foster i'm familiar with no and guess what it never once came up with her. <laughs> That's impossible. She was the type of person who called everyone by their first and last name. So she would say, you know, like, thank you so much for your input, Jarek Hoffer. Uh, you know? <laughs> You'd say, you're welcome, Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster, yeah. And my family, like the adults in my family, when I told them my teacher's name was Jodie Foster, they always said, like the actress. But I had never heard of the actress. I was in middle school, sure. you know. I wasn't yet familiar with the body of work of Miss Foster. That's right. A silence of the Lambs. <laughs> or panic room. <laughs> but I, the reason why I never realized it was a famous actor's name is because Jody never brought it up. Fair she enough. In- <laughs> She introduced herself on the daily. She's like, every day it felt like she was like, hello, class, it's me, your teacher, Jodie Foster. And that was a perfect (laughs) opportunity to say, not the actress, but but actually your middle school homeroom teacher. But she never did. Do you think she was aware or just some, like, that? did she have a sense of humor? Oh, yeah, she had a great sense of humor. But I I bet it's just one of those things that you, once it's happened so many times in life, it just stops being interesting to talk about. That's true. Funny enough, though, she was, childhood friends with Matt Groening who is the creator of The Simpsons they went to school together because he grew up in Portland, Oregon. Oh my god. She name dropped him constantly but never (laughs) once brought up the actress Jodie Foster. (laughs) So weird. I need to book all of them on this. I need both Jodies and Matt. Yeah, yeah. You need to get the full story. (laughs) A round table. Yeah. (laughs) But I started ballet at that middle school and it just so happened that the boy I was in 
love with basically all through middle school and high school. We're still good friends now. He's one of the many, many gay Sams in my life. (laughs) I have a lot of gay Sams in my life and I met them all in middle school. (laughs) So he was in, did you, did you sign up for ballet because Sam was in ballet? No, I didn't even know he was like a ballet prodigy until I started dancing myself. And then it was like, you know, I always treated it like we're both dancers and, you know, looking back on it, it's like Sam started dancing at like five years old. You know, he was a prodigy. Uh I started dancing at like 12 and thought I knew everything after three lessons, you know? And so I very much relate to Sam as if we were, you know, of the the same. same, But but his skill level was so much farther than mine that now looking back on it, I just kind of laugh at myself. What do you think drew you to it? Why did you want to do it? I just love performing. Hmm. So anything that got me on stage, I'd I'd pursue. And I thought dancing was like how I was going to be on stage. But all the roles I did in ballet were acting roles. Okay. Roles where I didn't really do much dancing. I just kind of (laughs) moved around the stage as a character (laughs) in rhythm to the music. (laughs) I love that because when you start something when you're younger, I mean, 12 is kind of on the cusp of that maybe broader awareness. But as a little kid, when you try something for the first time, you're often not aware that you're not good. And so you just get to enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was a um there was a lovely innocence and um obliviousness about it. <laughs> <laughs> and because I was always cast in like the acting roles, I got some pretty good parts, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I got to play some pretty fun parts in ballet, but it became, you know, abundantly clear that I wasn't being cast for my dancing skill. It was strictly my acting skill. And once I realized that, then I kind of, you know, made the shift to musical theater as my extracurricular activity and and I was done with ballet. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you are a pubescent queer person... doing any kind of athletic or sport-based activity, you know? And then you have to, like, share a dressing room or a locker room with other sweaty boys. It's an enchanted space. The pheromones really take over at that point, you know? It's all animal instinct. (laughs) So if it wasn't ballet that made me gay, it was sharing a dressing room with other um, ballet dancers (laughs) that definitely made me queer. It was the science of, like, sweaty pheromones at an age when maybe kids haven't realized they should be wearing deodorant. Yes. And I think maybe, you know, that's my route for being into armpits and BO now, you know. There you are. <laughs> Disney's responsible for the feet. <laughs> Ballet's responsible for my like body odor kink. And that's about it. You know, <laughs> pretty much after that, I'm as vanilla as they come. <laughs> okay, you know, sometimes when you start something new and you're like, I want to be good at this and you buy all the gear before you mm-hmm. go, like when you mm-hmm. ski for the first time <laughs> and you're in a thousand dollars worth of gear, did you show up to ballet in a full outfit? Um, well, yeah, I mean, you know, it was a requirement. We had a ballet uniform. I actually was publicly shamed by the ballet master once oh. because when I was taking dance classes at middle school, it was just wear whatever you wanted to wear, you know? Yeah. But when I started getting serious and taking ballet lessons and performing in ballets, I was quickly told how inappropriately I was dressed one day when I showed up with a black leotard and wide-legged dance pants and I was wearing my metal stud choker that I wore every day. <laughs> that said kitten in the middle. <laughs> Essentially. Oh, that would have been the coup de gras. But uh, I remember the ballet master saying once, here we wear white leotards 
and black sweatpants or black tights. And that is the only acceptable outfit to wear to class. So I was quickly shamed. (laughs) And that kind of set the tone for the rest of my ballet experience. Because when I made the transition from taking classes at middle school to taking like professional dance lessons, that's when it really became abundantly clear that I was not meant to be a ballet dancer. (laughs) No, you were meant for the free movement of jazz. Yeah. Uh, You know, the kind of like um, tenacity of tap. That's right. But uh, not the structure and discipline that ballet required. But I tell you, you know, all the ballet boys were so hot that I really wanted very badly to be good at ballet. You know, I really, really, I gave it the old college try, you know. (laughs) And I think people know more now that ballet, it's more popular knowledge that ballet is incredibly physically demanding and anyone in ballet is basically just like bone wrapped in muscle. Yeah. But at that time, people thought, no, it's like, it's this light sort of frilly activity. Oh, no. It destroys you, you know? Like, that's why ballet dancers have to, you know, have their careers while they're young because by 40, your body just can't keep up in general. You know, like, you can still have a fruitful career as a dancer until you die, but you aren't going to be able to, like, do what is required of you your whole life. 100%. To be, you know, a prima ballerina. Yeah, no, you hit that wall. I, I don't know, like, in your 30s sometime and then you become like the suburban (laughs) dance studio uh, coach which is a character I'm obsessed with (laughs) so what I also want to know too is what did Jodie Foster have to say about ballet did she ever did that come up oh well I mean you know she taught at the arts school so I mean she was way more of a creative thinker you know Mm. she was my homeroom teacher so she taught us reading, writing, social studies, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it didn't feel like they were lessons. Like every Wednesday was galumphing day where we just got to do whatever project we wanted to work on. So Wednesdays we could just, it was literally like a whole day of just doing whatever you want besides your elective classes, you know? It was like a Montessori school. A little bit. I mean, but it was very funny because Jody's class was the only class that operated that way. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like the whole school was a Montessori school. Jody was a Montessori teacher inside of an otherwise Portland public school. <laughs> Jody Foster does what Jody Foster wants, okay? Yeah, I mean, she earned that right. <laughs> 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 but uh, I will say that, like, you know, I was a, a, a very average student at my arts middle school, which, I mean, I'm talking about ballet making me queer, but going to an arts middle school was no small contributor <laughs> to right. my queerness. I mean, I came out in eighth grade and was uh, wow. swapping blowjobs behind the basketball court, <laughs> like at my arts middle school. If that's not queer, I don't know. <laughs> at Leonardo da Vinci Academy <laughs> exactly. or whatever it was called. He's a famous queer, so you were on point. Yeah, you know, it was just following the path laid out for me. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was a it was a very queer experience, my arts middle school. <laughs> and did you ever have, I mean, you work as a performer and dance finds its way into a lot you do, but did those ballet lessons ever creep up? Well, you know, I still am able to do the splits. That's <gasps> served me to no end in my career. <laughs> in my career. And, and otherwise. <laughs> 
<laughs> and just being able to have the basics of dance in my in my muscle memory. Mm-hmm. You know, I can I'm not the best at learning choreography, but I'm not the worst. And as a entertainer, as long as you're not the worst, you can fake the rest, you know? <laughs> That's a very good point. If you're yeah. if you're adequate, you can fake like you're better than adequate. You just have to like be careful not to bite off more than you can chew. Just like with French, just like with speaking French. I have my couple sentences that makes it look like I'm really proficient at French. And as long as people don't pry too deep, you know, I can I can fake yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Keep them on the surface. <laughs> if they ask something you don't understand, pretend that your phone is ringing yeah. and just Oh, oh, uh, excuse yeah. moi. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. And so it, the same kind of the same kind of goes for ballet and tap. Like I know some routines that make me seem like a dancer. So if I ever had to play a dancer, I could fake it. You know, mm-hmm. as long as they don't need you know, like as long as a stunt double's like an option <laughs> that I should be able <laughs> to That's fake right. it. <laughs> right, like a sort of black swan style body double. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. I would say you know those are my three biggest things that made me queer. My (laughs) early exposure to Disney, my choice of going to an arts magnet middle school, and my brief yet torrid love affair with the art of ballet. Oh my god, (laughs) each one of those has so much juice. So juicy. Yeah, there's a lot to squeeze there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank God for all three. We would not have it any other way. An honorable mention goes to Jodie Foster, the the Portland public schools teacher, not the um, famed actress. (laughs) Truly, truly Jodie Foster, uh, the Portland public schools teacher. If you are listening, contact me immediately. (laughs) I have a lot of questions. You know, I change most people's names or I just leave their names out of stories so I don't like incriminate any of my real life friends Mm -hmm. but you have to know that my middle school teacher's name was Jodie Foster otherwise (laughs) so much stuff is just left in the dark (laughs) yeah you can't swap that out for anything that would be as funny that's pretty golden Growing up in Portland, first of all, very queer city mm-hmm. helped me, you know, celebrate my queerness at a very early age. And I, I feel like I learned a lot about the LGBTQ plus community, like the moment I came out. Mm. I think there's lots of places where you might be safe to come out, but you only get to learn so much about your own community. You know, you maybe have like one or two other queer friends based on your region or your locale. For me in Portland, Oregon, I came out in middle school immediately started going to a queer youth resource center Mm. and then like from 14 on I knew countless queer identified trans identified people who were also my age (laughs) how awesome I got to go through puberty like a normal kid I think for that reason you know I think a lot of people who don't come out until their college years go through a queer puberty later in life Mm -hmm. oh yeah you know because they kind of either abstained from the puberty they would have liked to have had in mm-hmm. in their teenage years, or they were pretending to be someone else and experiencing a heterotypical puberty rather than the puberty they probably were meant to go through. Oh my God. Because queer puberty is very specific. It's very specific. <laughs> and as someone, so I went to theater school, so I started coming out there when I was 18 or 19. But as a result, when I started dating at like 20, I had the emotional dating maturity of 
like a 10 year old yeah and i apologize to everyone who went on a date with me from <laughs> anywhere in that span <laughs> yeah i i feel like being able to go through my authentic puberty you know <laughs> meant that i explored my sexuality and my my self-identity at a time when most teenagers do you know yeah that's really cool <laughs> kind of like a some it's something that i think straight teens might take for granted you know yeah. that like the system that we all operate within in America is catered towards being straight you know so mm -hmm. going through the American public school system and realizing you're queer means kind of swallowing a lot of your personality just to like go through your day with as little hassle as possible mm -hmm. so um, the fact that I had somewhere to go this queer youth resource center and you know my high school was less chill about my queerness but mm -hmm. my middle school was like I don't think I got bullied once for coming out in middle school oh my god what a miracle <laughs> and that makes me excited too because I see people who you know in grade school now are comfortable enough to identify as non-binary or something like that yeah what a gift because you're gonna spend your whole life growing up without repression and that's a I think that's a beautiful thing that's what we're fighting for you know mm -hmm. I think there's some resentment now because older queers are looking at how good younger queers have it and they're like, you whippersnappers have no idea. Because I was talking to my my videographer, who's a full 12 years younger than me. Uh -huh. is, uh, he went to the same middle school as me and the same high school as me. Oh, great. And I talked about my very, you know, my handful of bullying experiences in, in high school. You know, I, I had a few moments in high school where I was bullied relentlessly, but mm. I ultimately made it through just fine by being best friends with all those guys' girlfriends. <laughs> yes. My yep. tactic was become friends with the girlfriends, and then the girlfriends would um, cut the, the boyfriends off if they were <laughs> bullying me. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that's how I got through high school. <laughs> <laughs> in any case, um, my videographer went to the same high school as me, and he said... If he had gotten called a slur once, that person would have been expelled. Like, just period. Yeah. They don't fuck around now. Yeah. When I went to high school, the people who called me slurs got to say it was for religious reasons or got to say it was because of their background. And then they were told that they couldn't call me slurs anymore or then there would be consequences. So then what they did was disguise the slurs they were calling me, which is a typical like straight asshole teenager thing to do. You know, like what's an example of disguising a slur? Well, instead of saying, and I'll give you this example. Mm -hmm. But instead of saying, calling me the F word outright, mm -hmm. they would call me Zgit! <laughs> like literally I'm not even and now that I like look back on that and think about that fucking asshole in chemistry class calling me Zgit! instead of just like <laughs> calling me a faggot to my face, you know, yeah. like I look it's back so... on it and I'm like, wow, what a fucking idiot he was. Yes. <laughs> you know, like you look ridiculous. That doesn't <laughs> like... make sense. That's not a word. <laughs> exactly. Fools. And and then the, also the like fucking pretense that we had in high school, at, <laughs> you know, 20 years ago or however long, the pretense that like we were pretending that he wasn't just calling me a slur right you know and a teacher would not call him out or anything yeah like this yeah. like it's kind of i mean i feel like what i'm most grateful for at this moment in time is i feel like we as a society are beginning to 
just call things what they are. Mm -hmm. You know, like, let's stop pretending that someone's not being racist just because they're really good at disguising it. Let's stop pretending that homophobia doesn't still plague us just because people have gotten better at hiding their homophobia, you know? Mm -hmm. So if I could go back in time, I would tell young me to, like, turn to that person and say, you're the one who looks like an idiot right now because you're sitting here making up new words to call me. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you're choking. On a dick. (laughs) Well, I thank you so much for letting me um, talk about (laughs) all these things. I feel like you have been spending time in the dark and thinking because these are some pretty salient thoughts. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I've needed a lot of what am I trying to say? I'm a I'm a tall order. You know, I'm a sure, sure. I'm a. I'm a very queer, non-binary, trans femme drag queen. (laughs) All hail. (laughs) I also practice witchcraft. I have narcolepsy. And and (laughs) now you've got a ukulele. And I play ukulele. I'm a very complex, nuanced person. (laughs) And I've had to do a, a lot of soul searching to be able to proudly be that person I just described. Sure. And there's still all kinds of pushback in all kinds of ways just being the person that I am. But I've seen it get better throughout my lifetime. I've seen it get easier for people younger than me. Um, You know, I've seen the effects of progress. My youngest brother is also queer Mm. and he's had a completely different experience from me. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where I get to see the the fruits of my generation's efforts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> In the next generation of queer people, you know, the fact that drag is so cool now, the fact that gender expression is so much less of a big deal, mm-hmm. the fact that like monogamy and polyamory are both like being examined <laughs> within our community and heterotypicalness is no longer the norm. It's just like, it's really great to see where the LGBTQ plus community is at. Since I came out at such an early age and have been an active member of this community for like, you know, 18 years now, Mm -hmm. as long as I've been doing drag. It's just really, it's really cool to see where we're at and makes me really hopeful for where we're going to go. As long as we continue to unify and fight back against the powers that be, that try to push us backwards, you know? (laughs) 100%. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we've coming out of this dark age, which I will refer to as a dark age for sure. um, I think a lot is resetting, I hope, or at least people are just going to want to seek positive positivity maybe and just be more open to opportunities for positivity because the paradox is people you know go I really like that yucking someone else's yum that idea but the paradox is when people do that they're still simultaneously drawn to things that are undefinable or really unique or like really bright stars or incredible art is something that is iconic and and individual and so you can't hold those structures at the same time as you let that grow yeah I think the biggest 
biggest thing that prevents growth and the biggest thing that prevents like acceptance and joy and um, celebration is guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like the main purpose of my self unconditioning, <laughs> when I like kind of identified in myself certain ways I had been conditioned and certain things that were keeping me conditioned that way, it all had to do with guilt and shame, mm -hmm. you know, inherited guilt and shame learned guilt and shame around being queer, around being sexually active, you know, all this stuff that like was taught to me by my society, my family, the religion that works its way into our life, whether we're religious or not, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> all of that stuff taught me a lot of guilt and shame. And, you know, I had to examine where the guilt and shame came from and figure out a way to let go of it to be a more happy and joyful person. <laughs> Imagine that, right? <laughs> and that's what I think is, you know, I think that's what's attractive about things that are kind of like things that make us feel innocent, uh -huh. you know, <laughs> things that make us feel like a kid again <laughs> yeah. is because it's that time before guilt and shame. You know, there's, there's something to be said of like, a cartoon giving you funny feelings, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> because it doesn't necessarily have to be about boners and buttholes. Sometimes it can just be like Gaston is handsome and the child inside of me still thinks of that moment he stuck his foot up on the table, That's you right. know? <laughs> That's Before I knew what a penis looked like, I knew what Gaston's toe looked like. <laughs> oh my God. I have nothing to add to that because it needs to be immediately embroidered onto a pillow starting about a minute ago onto where you just ended, especially the boners and buttholes line. Now, I could talk to you all day and I'm so grateful to be talking to you. But before I let you go, would you like to play a game? Yes, absolutely. Great. This game is called Queer, Queerer, Queerist. Queerer. Okay, yes. And you are composing the theme song as we speak. Great, please continue. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this game is very simple. I'm going to list three things. You need to put them in order from least queer to most queer and tell me why. Okay. Any questions? No, I think I've got it. Okay, here we go. First thing, double dutch. Like the... Like the skipping. Like jump rope? Yeah. Okay. Jump rope where one person holds one and the other holds the other end. Yeah, you, yeah. And you skip. Second thing, jury duty. Okay. Third thing, Little Debbie. You know Little Debbie snack cakes? Yes. Okay, Little Debbie themselves. So just to recap, your three things, Double Dutch, Jury Duty, Little Debbie. Least queer to most queer and why? Okay, um, Jury Duty is least queer. <laughs> oh, no, never mind. Hold on, I immediately redact that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're taking um, this so seriously. No. Yeah, I'm probably too seriously, but um <laughs> <laughs> Impossible. I wanted to say I wanna say jury duty is least I'm going to say it's the least inherently queer, but there is something about judging your peers that um, <laughs> it's inherently queer. Um, but I'm still, uh, jury duty is least queer. Okay. Little Debbie is the medium queer oh. and the queerest is double Dutch, in my opinion. Okay, talk <laughs> me through. So we know why jury duty is least. Talk us through the next two. 
Little Debbie, I feel like, um, I don't know, when, when you're selling like cute little cakes, you just have to accept, you have to accept an inherent queerness, you know? <laughs> she also, I picture her, does she have a little hat? I honestly can't remember what Little Debbie, the like Little Debbie avatar looks like, but. <laughs> I want to call her like a, like a sort of B-rate Shirley Temple, and that might be cruel. But I stand by it. Yeah, probably. She, I, I keep seeing Wendy, you know, Wendy's. Wendy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I keep seeing her in my head. But Shirley Temple's probably closer. But um, <laughs> there are a lot of famous redheaded little girls. <laughs> yeah. But Little <laughs> Debbie, it's kind of like, you know, whether you want to be labeled as queer or not, you sell fruity little cakes. So <laughs> <That's> <laughs> those true. little cakes are pretty gay. So whose fault is that, Little <laughs> yeah. Debbie? Yeah, good point. And then what about Double Dutch? Double Dutch is queerest because I can just already see you know I can clearly picture in my mind little baby drag queens you know <laughs> double dutch skipping with lots of attitude so <laughs> I also feel just thinking about it now double dutch is probably the name for a graphic sex move that only non-hetero couples can accomplish that's, that's scat play yeah that's <laughs> oh, scat no. play okay okay <laughs> double dutch sounds so clearly like scat play I don't know <laughs> what else to think of it. and if any of you are listening and you don't know what we're talking about uh, wait till you're you're not uh, queer your enough. Guard, legal guardian has left the room yeah you're not queer enough uh but just google it later because i'm not telling you <laughs> oh my god okay so to uh recap uh jury duty least queer yes. little debs in the middle yes. uh like teenage simba and then double dutch most queer <laughs> yes congratulations jinx monsoon you win <laughs> you <laughs> <laughs> of course now before i let you go anything you want to plug oh yes you can join my patreon it's a place where i've been putting all the weird ideas i've had throughout quarantine <laughs> it's a lot of um it's a lot of sketch comedy and um, music videos that i've created with my life partner <laughs> we've done a lot of music videos together and then um, oh, this is your recent your your mariage right yeah yeah congratulations yeah. by the way thank you so much um so we got to make some music together while he was here and i've been working a lot with this new videographer liam krug Ooh. who has unlocked a whole new world of potential with me and digital entertainment and all of that is on my Patreon exclusively there. Or if you want to get some sneak peeks before uh, subscribing, you can go to my YouTube channel and just search Jinx Monsoon on both of those. And that's J-I-N-K-X. I paid extra for the K, so you have to use it. <laughs> and then otherwise, just follow my social media. Keep, a, keep abreast of what I'm up to. And my holiday movie, which is available year-round, is on Hulu. So if you like watching holiday films in the middle of spring, it's right there <laughs> on Hulu. It's the Jinx and Dela holiday special. And I'm very proud of that. As you should be. Please watch that. Also, modestly left out, catch uh, Jinx Monsoon and Ben De La Creme's cameo in Happiest Season, Clea Duval's Happiest Season. What a dream come true. Oh my God. She's a literal angel on earth, but she's been <laughs> a really, really, really kind um, person to me um, throughout the years of our friendship. And uh, she wrote that scene herself and, and wrote those characters for Ben De La Creme and I specifically. Yes. And it was just such a dream come true to be a part of that really joyful 
joyful um, queer holiday film. And now I'm re-watching Veep and I just got to the Clea Duvall era of Veep and I'm oh so happy because there's my pal. <laughs> I hope that post-pandemic world is what we call the Clea Duvall era because I'm here for it. <laughs> I, it on. I, I would, I would, yeah, immediately vote for President Clea Duvall. <laughs> yes, 100%. Um, would you play us out on your uke as we say goodbye? Sure. Thank you so much, Jinx. This was a pleasure. Thank you. Um, <laughs> see, I can't. You got this. You got this. <laughs> I really enjoyed um, talking with you today. I'm, um, I'm, I'm gonna tell you, my brain anxiety is already going nuts because I'm like, wow, I didn't think I'd end up talking so much about. <laughs> <laughs> Are we still stuck on the furries? Okay. Furries and childhood sexuality. Yeah, it's like all of that. I'm very candid. I'm an open book. I wish and now you would all be. I can think about is um, the the tweets that are gonna follow this podcast. That's like, so Jinx talked for an hour about furries and um, Disney <laughs> sexuality. <laughs> I hope she's okay. The furry coming out episode. <laughs> no, I mean, just go back to what you said is your final thought. <laughs> Everyone, don't yuck someone else's yum. Don't right? yuck someone else's yum. That's the main takeaway. Exactly. And I, I, I credit Michael Phyllis in San Francisco for that um, quote. I don't want anyone to give me credit for that. <laughs> Michael Phyllis, we salute you. <laughs> Love it. No guilt and shame. Um, just beautiful dresses behind you and whatever the fuck we want. Okay, bye, darling. <laughs> bye. Thank you so much. Have a great rest <laughs> Your day. Thank you. You too. Bye bye. Queer, 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 Okay, as always, you can contact us at youmademequeer at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. You know, it'll just take a few seconds. It really means the world, and it will change things for me in the show. So hop on there, type out some love. If you've got some love to give, I want to get it. And I guess that's it. So... Q credits. You Made Me Queer is created, produced, and edited by me, Trevor Campbell. Our theme song is by Critty. For more of her music, check out lavenderbruisers.bandcamp.com. Our website is youmademequeer.com. Our Instagram and Twitter handles are at youmademequeer. New episodes of You Made Me Queer come out every Thursday. And from the bottom of my big, bent heart, thank you for listening. Until next time, we're here, we're queer. And oh my god, it is your fault. <laughs>